You're listening to MuniCast, the podcast that discusses municipal leadership. Season three of MuniCast is brought to you by SASTEL's innovation and collaboration team. SASTEL can help you sort through the noise to create solutions that add value quickly, whether it's reducing your environmental footprint, driving investment, community development, or just saving money. Contact your SASTEL account manager to find out more. MuniCast is hosted by SUMA, the voice of Saskatchewan's hometowns. I'm Stephanie and joining me today is Don Iveson, former mayor of Edmonton. Don served as Edmonton's 35th mayor from 2013 to 2021 with a guiding leadership principle to make things better for the next generation. Since retiring from City Hall, Don continues to live in Edmonton. He works part-time with the cooperators as executive advisor for climate investment and community resiliency, advising their CEO and senior leadership. Welcome, Don, and thank you for joining us for this episode of MuniCast. Really glad to be here. I wanted to start off our conversation today by learning a little bit more about you and your journey in municipal politics. You started at a young age and were elected to council when you were 28. Uh, What gave you the desire to enter municipal politics in your 20s? It's a great question. I had done quite a bit of work with my community association, and I had also done some work professionally uh, at the University of Alberta working for undergraduate students uh, as their government relations uh, policy and strategy researcher. And, and in that capacity, I did quite a bit of work around a transit project, um, which some people would know as a U-pass, which is essentially purchase discount for post-secondary students at, in this case, a number of different post-secondary institutions in Edmonton uh, on three different regional transit agencies, including Edmonton Transit. So it was actually quite a complex um, negotiation that taught me an awful lot about city hall and regional governance and transit policy. Uh, And there was a housing crunch at the time in the um, 2005, 2006 here in Edmonton. And so I was starting to think about land use and housing affordability and how transit could help people make different choices and move around their city differently, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, so on and so forth. So I was already starting to think quite a bit about uh, city planning issues at that time. And then my work on some of that led a few more than a few people to suggest, you know, we really could use that kind of thinking on city council, you should think about running. And so I was asked and and invited and prodded by uh, some people whose opinion I took seriously. Uh, But I think it actually started a few years before that in a project uh, called Canada 25, which did a few years of um, public policy roundtables on a couple of different topics. Uh, and, and it was a bunch of retired student leaders. So I had a background in student press and lots of friends of mine were, were students union leaders from across the country. And, and um, th- they all used to love, just like folks like going to FCM and, and SUMA and Municipalities Alberta conferences, these student leaders missed those conferences when they got together and stayed up all night, tried to solve the problems of the world in the hallways after doing the, the policy work. Um, and so they started this project called Canada 25 uh, with some fairly serious um, corporate and philanthropic support to bring emerging, you know, younger Canadian leaders recently graduated together to tackle big problems. The first year they looked at brain drain, which was a big issue sort of 2000, 2001. And then one of the things that they found out of the brain drain was 
that we just weren't building competitive Canadian cities that, frankly, young people wanted to stay in. There was no sort of intention around that. The final report out of this Canada 25 um, uh, process was written by a guy named Nahid Nenshi, who you may know as the mayor of Calgary, and uh, represented a bit of a playbook for a lot of the kinds of things that younger leaders were bringing to city halls across the country. And he and I were both kind of working from that same playbook, and it's still out there available on the on the web if people want to Google it. That's incredible. It sounds like you've been really involved in your community, even as a student, and seeking that insight into what the community needs and where you can start putting in your efforts to help improve that. What would you say were some of the biggest challenges that you faced and some of the biggest opportunities? Well, initially, when I set out, you know, the the stereotypical city councillor in most communities, including Edmonton, was, you know, someone late in their career. And that was sort of the expectation. You need to be late in career and have certain experience to be a city councillor, a, a steward of of leadership in the city. It was odd uh, to have a younger person running, um, but I'm, I'm pleased to tell you that that's really changed over the last uh, 15 years or so. You know, when I got on council, the average age of our council, even with me in my 20s, was still in its 60s. And uh, when I left, I was at 42, older than the average age of the incoming council. So that's really two generation shifts happening in less than the time of a generation. Um, and so I was the first of a crop of young leaders stepping up. But initially that, you know, there's a lot of patting on the head. Oh, isn't this nice to see young people stepping forward and running and, you know, uh, stick with it after two or three elections, maybe you'll get on council. So there was, you know, a lot of, uh, I think, well-meaning uh, underestimation. Um, but then I went out there and knocked on uh, tens of thousands of doors and worked really hard and and um, was articulating things that were relevant, not just to my generation, but to parents of folks in my generation who were concerned about housing affordability for their kids, mobility for their kids, creating reasons for their kids to want to stay in Edmonton, and also basic questions of sustainability that were we were still just learning to talk about in the context of uh, cities and climate change, uh, air quality, water quality, uh, sustainable land use, you know, these, I was talking about those things and, um, it turns out people were, you know, had, had an, a sense just as regular people that city hall needed to be thinking more long-term in its planning and that having the perspective of someone who was actually going to be around for that long-term, um, would be a positive addition to our city council. So youth started out as a bit of a disadvantage and became an advantage. That's really interesting that it yeah started out as a disadvantage and then took you into an advantage and was able to get you on the same line of sight as a couple of different generations when it comes to the younger generation as well as their parents looking for ways to support them. Communities elected are electing younger municipal officials and that's become increasingly more common. What do you think some of the reasons for that are? I think there's a mix of push and pull factors. You know, I, I think that the scale of issues that that we're all dealing with, particularly around um, the environment and climate change, which are generational issues, and also um, income inequality and how that shows up in the housing market and housing affordability. You know, these are these are questions which, no matter what stage of life you're at, you can start to see how either 
you know, you may have had it different and much better earlier in life if, if you're um, an older person. Um, and also young people are taking a huge interest in understanding uh, some of the challenges that lie ahead for them, whether it's a pathway to affordable home ownership or whether it's um, the risks and challenges presented by, by climate or, or, you know, even fundamental questions about uh, the state of our democracy and taking ownership and leadership over it. So those are some of the like pull factors in terms of issues that I think resonate across the board for, for motivated voters and candidates to consider ensuring that, that there is uh, some youth and some diversity. But in terms of sort of push factors for younger candidates to be choosing particularly local government, I've been watching a trend and talking to uh, folks coming up kind of behind me, and I mentor a number of young leaders in Edmonton and elsewhere, um, and the resonance for them, and this is not to speak ill of folks who, who run provincially or federally, I have admiration for anyone who puts, their, uh, puts themselves out there uh, electorally, but the number of people who are finding an opportunity to provide non-polarizing leadership, or even to think, you know, we've all had an education the last few years about how important it is to not just be not racist, but to be anti-racist actively, right? And I think I think that in our politics and what's happening in our democracy right now, I'm a big believer that it's not good enough to just not contribute to polarization. We need to actually do our best when we can to be anti-polarizers. And I think local government being inherently nonpartisan, being closer to the people, just physically, even the way we sit in, in fluid and flexible coalitions of people sitting often in a, in a semicircle, that just the whole system is much more conducive to anti-polarizing leadership, that I think a, a generation of leaders um, are drawn to that and who would not choose provincial or federal partisan politics, but who see... Uh, have a desire to serve and a desire to make their community better and see a much safer and more productive venue for that leadership and service uh, at the local level. Uh, people do go into municipal politics because they get to be closer to the people that they are working with and working for. And earlier this year, when you provided a keynote speech for SUMA at our annual convention, you talked about the importance of meeting people and building relationships so you can better serve the people that elect you. While elected, what were some of the ways that you continued to connect with the citizens of Edmonton? I'll be the first to say that that gets harder after your first election when you go from being, you know, the outsider who doesn't wear the record of the established council to now being a member of the council. And ultimately, especially if you're the mayor, people then tend to sort of, especially if they have a gripe, you know, associate with the city at all that then you are, you know, the vessel for that gripe. So the relationship does change when, when you're elected. Um, but there's no substitute for uh, knocking on doors of the people uh, who you want to serve in the first instance. I still think that's the best way to get elected. A lot of people will spend an awful lot of time on social media strategies to try to win elections. And I think you have to have one, they're table stakes, but there's still no substitute for actually going out and introducing yourself to people. And even more importantly, listening to what their, what their concerns are, what their hopes and aspirations are. So once you have made the transition from, um, from outside to inside, maintaining the perspective and engagement of citizens, I saw that change. You know, I was one of those very eager early adopters of Twitter before it turned into whatever it is now, 
because I thought it was one of those places where we're really going to have the, the virtual town square of ideas and exchange of information and good faith questions with good faith answers. And it is a long way from that now. So I, I thought technology was going to play a big role in that, and it still does. But um, the city of Edmonton, and this, this became more and more important, because once you're the mayor, no one really tells you the truth to your face, right? It really is an emperor has no clothes situation. Um, now, what people don't realize is that you also have ears in many, many rooms. And so when people are smack talking, <laughs> that gets back to the mayor too. So, you you know, it's it's a little bit sobering that way, but all the more reason to have uh, really effective um, mechanisms to uh, collect public sentiment um, besides obviously reading the newspaper and, and watching social media, but really getting directly to people um, in, in more unfiltered ways. So uh, the city of Edmonton's public engagement policy was updated and got international recognition for doing something as simple as rewriting the policy. You know, people would know the uh, IAP2 guidelines for how to do public engagement, um, but they're all written from the perspective of the public engagement practitioner and the end user of that information. But we had a sort of um, citizen panel that worked with some of our city councillors to do a policy review of that. And, and one of the most elegant things they did was turn it around and rewrite the policy from the perspective of the citizen. So that it was, what is the citizen's expectations of varying degrees of public engagement? You know, are they the deciders? Uh, in the case of a referendum or direct democracy exercise, or are they receiving information and providing comment? Um, and so, so then implementing that, you know, rewriting the policy is actually relatively easy, honoring a policy like that in a really democratic and open way, knowing that you can't please everybody by definition, um, you know, that was really critical for us. And I think meant rich uh, and engaged um, listening to our public on major decisions. And then one of the other things that we did that worked really well was uh, we set up a standing citizen panel. Uh, and I think there were five or 6,000 Edmontonians and they were, by, they were by design more engaged citizens. So it wasn't a random sample, but it was people who were really interested in what was going on in the city, who self-identified and then were willing to take um, surveys that the city would put out periodically about pressing issues that were coming forward. And then sometimes we would get a poll done uh, or a survey done of a representative sample of Edmontonians. And also it was really interesting to see sometimes what the difference was between um, generalized sample of Edmontonians and the sort of self-selected um, uh, hyper-engaged group of Edmontonians. And usually, unless there was something really extraordinary going on, it wasn't wildly out of proportion. So we were. What we learned was that we were able to use that citizen panel uh, routinely to to get a good sense of where Edmontonians were at on issues, and also test ideas with them too, and say, well, if we explain it like this, so you, we could do focus grouping and all kinds of things with this online panel. It became a tremendously useful tool to understand um, where an engaged sample of Edmontonians was. I think that's a really interesting point that you highlighted there is that there is still the importance for the social media platform and the online present, but it's really the legs for the full table. Nothing can quite compare to going out, knocking on doors and getting to know the citizens directly. 
And I'm really curious about how um, doing that, going out and meeting the citizens, as well as having your community panel, what that did to help connect to your community better to understand the health of the community of, uh, as a whole and what role compassion played in all of that? Well, it's really easy if you've got good digital tools to just rely on those. So, you know, I I, um, I think it for me, it was still really important to get out into community. And this got so much harder to do during the pandemic for, for everybody. Um, but it was just as important for me uh, to connect with communities that didn't have high online participation, you know, because of economic conditions, uh, digital divide, or just straight up houselessness. You couldn't expect to have longitudinal engagement from uh, individuals who needed the services of their community the most. Being present with, um, and, and even just at the most basic level, being curious about, and with compassion about the the experience of marginalization, the experience of of racism, the experience of um, being ostracized within community because of addictions and mental health challenges, and trying to maintain a sense uh, and connection to the humanity of of all Edmontonians, including the folks who are struggling the most in our community. um, That that you have to get up close for. And, um, you know, so making sure that our in-person engagements, supplementing the digital work that we were doing, included people with lived experience from diverse communities, um, meant that not only the elected officials, but also the, 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 the municipal workers and the fellow citizens had the opportunity, ideally, to hear from folks who were struggling in community. Because it's easy to get high engagement, high participation from people who earn well, who feel safe, who are employed, who, you know, who generally feel secure in the community. And those, but the bias of those people is that things are generally going well, right? And and for those for whom it is not going well, it's critically important to go out of your way to understand what their experience is. Um, and particularly now, you know, we understand that in Canada and on the prairies, particularly through a lens of reconciliation uh, and intergenerational trauma in the context of broader colonization and anti-racism and, and community safety. And so, but fundamentally it's about humanizing all the folks who who are in your community and you know as leaders i think it's very easy to play to you know play to your base and play to the folks who vote and play to the folks who show up um but it's you know our responsibility is broader to that our oath is not just to the people who voted for you and not even just to the people of your district in a ward system but it really is to the whole community including especially those people who who may be struggling so making sure that their voices are are included in in decision making um, and and not being afraid to hear sometimes very harsh feedback. You know, they may be very right that the system has failed them, and many systems. and And folks don't always distinguish between roles of the different orders of government. And uh, you know, cities and and local governments take a lot of heat for what I regard as you know policy failures of our country and of our provinces and of our society. Um, but there has to be an outlet for that. And and it, and the minute it's not compassionate, the minute it's in, infused with judgment or defensiveness, and I've done both. Uh, you know, the the minute we stop maintaining the the kind of open heartedness that's necessary to do really complicated work in community. Across the province, SASTEL is engaged with many different municipal organizations who seek to innovate, 
Contact your SASTEL account manager to learn more about some of these initiatives and how they can help your municipality today. I really liked how you uh, touched on the fact that the people who are already engaging with the city are the ones that are usually things are going well and they are ready to to be there and have those conversations. But a lot of the time who we want to hear from are the people who aren't don't have the capacity necessarily to engage with you and to to be part of those conversations. And so when addressing community mental health and you already spoke to this a little bit, um, we've heard the phrase a lot. It's important to meet people where they're at is. Is that a philosophy that you agree with? And what does that mean to you? And what are some ways that you would have implemented it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll i say first that I think, you know, I've never seen it so bad. And I don't just mean for folks who are, um, you know, draw a lot on municipal services or who are struggling with extreme deprivation and inequality. I just, I think, you know, it's it's a really timely question because, you know, we, we see it in our organizations. I, I saw it in our workforce at the city after two years of pandemic and virtual work and, and budget constraints. You know, one point in the city here, we had over 4,000 people on temporary layoff because we had facilities closed and because we weren't sure about our financial situation. You know, these were, these were very desperate times and not just for municipal governments, you know, most organizations, most households, um, and then especially for people who are who are already struggling. So understanding that everybody's in pretty tough shape right now, I think is kind of an important first principle right now. Like decision makers, I've never seen uh, leaders as stressed out. I, it took me months to realize how burnt out I was after, after stepping down as mayor. Um, and I you know, people said, why didn't you run again? And there's all kinds of reasons, but, um, but, you know, I, I, on some level, I knew how, how worn out I was. And yet there's lots of other people, especially frontline workers who never got a break during this. So all just to say, like, we all got to do that, I think, to get through this and, and challenges with that are leading to, you know, some eruptions of behavior that really are tough to stomach. And then folks who are, who, who had the most challenges to begin with are in even worse shape than they were before. So I think it's, I think it's as important as it has ever been to, to meet people where they're at, which is that, you know, I don't know anyone who's had 365 good days in a row in a given year, right? So everyone's struggling. And I certainly struggled. And so peer support became incredibly important. Like the, the work that I was doing with uh, the big city mayors through the pandemic as sort of weekly calls that we had with the federal government. I mean, those were very important, you know, literally disaster response uh, engagements that we had. And we tried to provide some feedback to the federal government about everything from supports for small business to transit restart, to uh, gaps in housing and the ability of vulnerable people to isolate. Um, And then also practically speaking, support for municipalities of all scales and in responding to the budget challenges. But there were also, you know, a chance to connect with peers who were going through similar issues with their organizations. So, you know, I mean, in general terms, you know, we kind of had to look out for each other a little bit. So then at a community level, you know, on the one hand, there is a lot of anger right now, and justifiably so. I try to see in the context of the struggles that people have and, and the absence of, or depletion of resources that many people have. But, but we're seeing behavior out there in community, especially at the acute end for, 
you know, the, the downtowns of, of all of our larger cities and a lot of mid-sized centers as well, you know, have never seen this kind of disorder in, in our lifetimes. The economic stresses people are under, and then the mental health uh, stresses people are under, and then add in um, addictions challenges on top of that, and then add in that the substance um, drug poisoning has led to a variety of different things where, you know, what people were self-medicating with 10 or 20 or 30 years ago in our downtowns is very different from what people are taking now. I mean, these are real issues and they're very, very challenging. But starting from the premise that these these are human beings who are suffering is I, still important for me because the minute we or decision makers or the public discourse dehumanizes human beings who are suffering in our cities and treats them like um, a problem or from a place of judgment. And it's hard not to go there. It's hard not to go there if the window of your business got smashed out or your car got broken into uh, or your, your daughter doesn't feel safe going to school or using transit. So it's really hard to climb out of our tendency to judge. So that's all, all back to your question. Like that's where a lot of people are at. And the other thing that I try to remember is that most of us are a couple of tragedies away from that. And so when, so for me, some of the most meaningful experience is um, understanding that it's not that, you know, I'm morally better. And that's why I'm not on the street. It's that I was really lucky where I was born. I was really lucky not to be born with um, a predisposition towards serious mental illness or addictions. I was really uh, uh, privileged to be born in a house that was very nurturing uh, and not, not a violent or scary place, you know, and that it doesn't take much along with losing your job and a whole bunch of uh, you know, other tragedies that can happen to people late in life for people to wind up in those very, very difficult situations. And so, um, so that's what meeting people where they're at is understanding that there's a whole journey of, of personal and societal tragedies that unfolded to get some of that place. And, you know, as a community, we've got to act to, to support people and start with where they're at too. Uh, so, so that means housing first, that means, um, you know, addictions policy that that doesn't immediately presume abstinence before you can get a, additional help. Um, you know, that mean, that means a variety of of tough choices um, for policymakers. But but inaction on these, judgment on these, leaving them to fester in our cities, be and then blaming the cities as if they caused these challenges. Um, you know, that's that's an unfortunate game of politics that's unfolded in a number of Canadian provinces, particularly on the prairies, that I think it isn't making conditions better for people to feel safe, isn't making conditions better for business and investment. It sure as hell isn't making healthcare and justice any more cost effective. So uh, I think if we started with where people are at, um, we'd, we'd get to a different place faster. I think that was a really important point that you made about how we are not that far off from being in that position. A lot of it is uh, where we were born into and the luck that we've had throughout our lives. And for a lot of people, it can take only a few a few bad things, having a car breakdown, losing uh, your job at the same time before you can end up in a very similar situation. What changes do you think need to be made to the way that we work to better address some of those really big issues that seem to be consistently affecting communities on a large scale? 
Well, I, I maybe just add one more thought to what we were just talking about, which is, um, you know, I, I had an experience that was really, a, it, and it took me years to make meaning out of this. And I think I'm still coming to terms with it on some level, which is that my, you know, best friend from big chunks of um, secondary school, um, you know, grew up in a in a privileged and affluent neighborhood, middle class parents, and and this very good friend of mine was often the life of the party, but he wound up um, in a battle with with mental health, and I never got a label or a, you know a, an explanation, but he was struggling. He self medicated and and went down a journey that included ten years on the streets. Uh, of Edmonton at the same time that I was at City Hall. And I literally stepped over him once just outside of City Hall. Um, and he was he was down and out on the street. And so the, for me, I, I kind of have that up close and experience of um, knowing someone who ran in the same circle as me very, very tightly, who, who wound up in very difficult circumstance. And who reported to me later when I saw him when he was doing much better that um, the city's approach to housing first had, in his words, saved his life. And I still get emotional thinking about it because, you know, that was obviously pretty up close personal testimony, uh, sample size of one. But the evidence around um, providing housing and shelter for folks. Um, well, they also have wraparound services brought in, challenge their mental health challenges, um, their, their other, you know, human needs. The, the longer someone is street involved, the, and, and depending on their, each their individual circumstances, if there isn't a community or a, a family to go back to for whatever reason, you know, the, the more that housing is critical and, and there's a big debate right now, but the key is that uh, it's not just a roof and see you later. It's got to be integrated um, wellness supports and culturally safe supports for people. So for example, you know, faith-based programs work really well for people who have that, that faith anchor from their childhood. But if the faith anchor in their childhood was a trip to residential schools, that is not going to be safe. And so culturally appropriate supportive housing with 24-7 uh, health care support while they are uh, dealing with untreated mental health and, and, and drug circumstances. You know, without those supports, of course, the housing gets trashed. Of course, people wind up back out on the street. Of course, people go back to their addictions or have their dealer come in and and crash at their place. This is so you can't just you know put people in a motel and and declare victory and say that you've ended that person's homelessness. You've 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 maybe abridged it very shortly. But this is where the emphasis in in on supportive housing. Uh, in the supports themselves is, I think, the critical gap. And, and you know, Medicine Hat is often cited as one of those places that has achieved this goal of uh, uh, ending chronic homelessness. People still become homeless, but they're rapidly rehoused. And then their agencies are really, really good at providing people very effective supports to stay housed and achieve recovery, uh, or at least management of their addictions and achieve a degree of healing with respect to mental health challenges and trauma. 
Um, and, and that's why they've been so successful. So you have to really stick with it and you have to fund the, uh, the supports properly. And then for better or for worse, you know, some of Medicine Hat's toughest cases don't stay in Medicine Hat. They wind up in Edmonton and Calgary. So there is an extra load and the most severe and complex uh, cases often wind up um, in the big cities. So some, you know, uh, asymmetrical investment is needed because those folks didn't all come from Edmonton and Calgary, but it's, it's or, or Regina or Saskatoon, but it's often kind of the, the last, the last resort place. And so providing a, an effective intervention um, of not just a roof uh, and not just some programming, but a sense of some community that's supportive of that individual's recovery and healing, you know, that's, it's hard to do. It's not cheap, but it's way cheaper than leaving the problem to, um, uh, to the status quo, which is this revolving door of uh, engagement with the, with the health system uh, and, and uh, you know, return trips to incarceration, all of which have a much higher cost than, than doing supportive housing properly. So I still think that, that uh, proper supportive housing is one of the most, with you know, recovery and, and deep mental health support, culturally safe support, is, uh, is still the missing piece of the puzzle to turning this around in our, uh, in, in communities of all sizes, but especially in the big cities. I think that's a really important highlight that you made there about how it is very much about getting a roof over somebody's head so that they have that, that safety and that ability to go forward and, and continue doing what they need to do with their lives. But that if there aren't any follow-up supports and resources for them, it is very difficult for people to keep doing that and how important that is for um, supporting people through the future um, and with those programs like that. Uh, another thing that you mentioned, too, is how in Medicine Hat, a lot of their more difficult cases end up going to some of the larger municipalities. And me- Medicine Hat itself is still a larger municipality. For smaller communities, what role do you see um, regionalization and collaboration having in supporting um, people who are trying to get help for mental health and addictions? Well, I think, I think it's critical. I think you make a good point. And, and this, this example really illustrates it well that, you know, human systems and whether we're talking about labor markets and commuter patterns, or whether we're talking about addictions and mental health journeys, you know, these are borderless. So solutions need to be borderless as well. And, uh, you know, we often would discuss at the Northern Alberta Mayor's and Reeves Caucus, the equal importance of housing interventions, uh, you know, on First Nations and, um, and in um, smaller towns in the north, uh, so that folks had a place to either return to or, or not leave in the first place. And uh, so that we needed to take sort of a systems level approach to regional planning and meeting the gaps in the housing system. I would love to see the right thousand in Edmonton and the right 500 elsewhere that that help, you know, manage, you know, folks closer to home and support them closer to home so that they don't wind up kind of down and out in the big city at the end of it. And that there's, if you took that, you know, regional planning approach to acute needs in housing and mental health and addictions and corrections and community safety, um, uh, you know, you could spare the city a lot of what is the load of the failure of the system today by by investing upstream, um, and, and it would probably be more efficient. So, in principle, I totally agree with that. 
that argument. We're just at the point now where we're so far behind in the big cities with a generational or really intergenerational problem um, that that's where that's where a lot of the attention is focused. But I think if you know, really starting from the premise that helping people heal quickly from the turmoil of life and they're going to be able to do that so much better closer to home, especially um, land-based programming that's culturally appropriate and safe and inviting for, for um, Indigenous community members. Um, you know, that all of that's going to be way more uh, successful and cost-effective as prevention and early intervention than response to chronic unmet need. And and so, again, you probably need to do both. Otherwise, you're just going to get really good at pulling people out of the river rather than learning how to keep them from falling into the river upstream. Easy to say, hard to do. You know, we keep as humans and as policymakers failing the marshmallow test over and over. But um, the other the other issue is, you know, that it's really easy because it's systemic and because it's regionalized to just play jurisdictional pass the buck uh, and blame somebody else for the failure. And I've done my fair share. And I think there's a case to be made of calling out the government of Alberta for, for gaps in their response to this at this systemic level. And past a certain point, that's not actually serving anybody. We've, we do need to figure out what actions are we going to take. Um, but, but yes, to your point, I think you've got to have an end-to-end um, urban and rural response to helping people where they're at. And the more we were able to do that, you know, not just with their mental health, but, but literally, um, you know, location-wise meeting them where they're at, I think the system would work a lot better than it does right now. You've really highlighted how complicated that a lot of this can be and uh, just how many different factors there are that play into it. And you've brought up the, the different levels of government a few times and citizens. And so there's just, yeah, so many different things that go in and play into each other to create these situations. And it's not going to take just one person in order to be able to address all of them either. I want to shift gears a little bit for our last question here. You had mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation how difficult moving through the pandemic and being on council for those several years had been and the point of burnout that you reached. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you did to support yourself and how groups like the Big City Mayor's Caucus helped support you through those times. Well, I, uh, I was really fortunate to have a couple members of city council who, um, you know, it's being the mayor is a little bit out on your own, but if they're which is why that peer network of of other big city mayors doing comparable jobs was so valuable just because you know something was coming up or just the load we were all bearing kind of as chronic stress you know just being able to validate that for each other and talk a little bit about what we were doing you know what we were reading for either technical background or you know a lot of knowledge sharing but then even at the level of like how are you looking after yourself are you doing okay so that sort of basic mental health first aid for each other um, and solidarity that, yeah, you know, this is really hard. This is tough. That that was kind of table stakes essential. Um, and then, you know, a little bit more um, regularly and deeply with a couple members of my city council, um, you know, was able to have pretty frank conversations about how we were doing and kind of, um, you know, more 
uh, vulnerable conversations, trusting conversations, you know, a conversation I wouldn't necessarily had with my whole council and I wouldn't have had it with the microphone on. I wouldn't have had it in public, but particularly with the stresses our organization was going through, um, you know, being able to, to check in with each other and share some resources, even just, you know, when we were all working virtually getting together and going for a walk just to maintain that human connection, because that that alienation from each other, that sense of apartness um, starts to eat away at trust. The weak social bonds that hold communities together and even hold, you know, organizations or or groups like a board or a council together. So just trying to maintain that connection really deliberately with people. And, um, you know, I started listening to a lot more podcasts. You know, it was one of those paradoxical things where I went from working 90 hours a week to more like 60. And I've never worked as hard in my life or been as I felt as much load in that 60 but I had the other 30 back to spend a lot more time with my kids um, and to, you know, look after my physical health a little bit better um, or try to anyway. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, tend to, you know, my, my wellness as a person, which was, which was tough and it's not scale dependent. I mean, I think talking to other mayors from communities of all sizes, urban and rural, and we all felt that on behalf of our, our community, on behalf of, the people we worked with and served with. I worked with uh, a coach and, you know, that became essentially therapy along the way, just prioritizing, even just acknowledging how much stress I was under as a leader and then carving out space to reflect on that, to, you know, journal a lot, uh, to, to, to seek uh, solidarity and advice from peers um, and then also to check in with my colleagues too, and make sure that they were okay. Um, and it, and at any given time, one of us wasn't. So that was critically important. And I remember that in the first year of the pandemic, there was a lot more conversation about isolation and mental health and the effects of chronic stress. And I was, I was one of those people really hoping that we were going to be talking about that more after the pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, I think Unfortunately, you don't see that conversation as much, though I think the tone shifted and I think I think the next generation is much more comfortable talking about a mental health in the context of organizational dynamics. And, and I mean, I think you can put a, a mental health lens on a lot of the, the discord in in our country and in the world right now, um, which is not all related to the pandemic, but that certainly made it worse. So, I mean, I guess trying to maintain perspective was the big, was the big challenge, but I think the bottom line is nobody can do that alone, right? We all need support systems. We all need resources. We all need tools. Um, and sometimes we need professional help for those things. And uh, I'm glad that, that I had those resources going in. I recognize a lot of people didn't. So there's something that you've highlighted a lot throughout our conversation today was just the importance of connection, whether it was on a personal level or a community level, or even just amongst your own council. That has been something that we've heard a lot about throughout the pandemic and especially coming out of it is that need for connection and really coming together again and being able to yeah, be with one another. So that brings me to the end of my questions for today. And I really just wanted to thank you for having this conversation with me. I really appreciated hearing more about your insights, your experiences, some of your personal experiences and professional ones. And um, yeah, thank you very much for being here. Well, my pleasure. And, and just maybe on a final thought, 
you know, our communities are where we are most likely to find that connection, you know, beyond our immediate family and beyond our workplace. So I think it's just so important that we, um, as, as leaders in community elected and otherwise, work to create conditions that's, that foster that connection with people rather than, than othering or judging or losing that connection to, to our, our fellow human beings. There aren't really bad people there's just bad behavior. And the minute we start to see someone as bad at their core because of a behavior that is arguably deplorable and, and we can judge the behavior, but once we judge the person and write them off, we've lost that connection. And I get why that's happening nationally. I get why it happens politically in the partisan space. I get why it happens in professional sports, but it can't happen at the level of our towns uh, and our villages and our cities. We've, we've got to hang together and save community there. And that's where, you know, the work of, of local leaders is so important. I was privileged to get to do it for 14 years, but uh, very, very happy to have the chance here to share just a few thoughts about and gratitude to all the people who continue to do this work during a very difficult uh, period uh, in, in our history um, at the local level where that, that bond of community and connection can and should be the strongest. So thanks to everyone who's listening, who's doing this work every day. This brings us to the end of another episode of MutiCast. Thank you for tuning in to season three. We hope you enjoy it as much as we have enjoyed having these conversations. Join us for episode two, where we will be speaking with SUMA's president and counselor for the city of Yorkton, Randy Golden. 